You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Wednesday, June 17th. Started this morning about 10 o'clock and marched the first three or four miles very rapidly. The weather today excessively hot and straggling commenced very early. The roadsides were soon lined with stragglers, many of whom were completely exhausted by the heat, many suffering from and some dying, it was said, from sunstroke. When the brigade made its first halt to rest, it was a mere skeleton of what it was when it started. So many were behind. About sunset, the division went into camp. At night, the heat was so great that it was difficult to sleep. Friday, June 19th. Started about sunrise and halted about midday on a high hill overlooking the village of Front Royal, having crossed the Blue Ridge at Thornton Gap. The scenery along the route was exceedingly beautiful, in some places very wild. We were struck with the luxuriant richness of the country on both sides of the mountains, how it contrasted with the worn and devastated country to which we had so long been accustomed. Saturday, June 20th. Last night was very bad on the men in consequence of the heavy rain. Just as my messmate and myself had about fallen asleep, the water from the soft and wet ground where our bed was made soaked through our underlying oilcloth and blanket and through the thick sleeves of my woolen shirt and coat, and reaching my skin thus reminded me of the uncanny condition of things. We at once got up and found it raining a little, but some of the men had already begun to make fires from the rails of a neighboring fence. To one of these fires we repaired and spent the remainder of the night alternately drying and warming one side of our clothes and bodies while the other side was getting a fresh wetting from the falling rain. Sunday, June 21st. This morning, one day's rations of cornbread issued to us. The country through which we are now marching is very beautiful. The land's very fine. Wednesday, June 24th, on picket near Shepherdstown. Everything quiet last night. We heard yesterday that General Lee has issued very stringent orders to secure respect for private property when we get into the enemy's country. We are all still utterly ignorant of General Lee's design in making this movement, but the army was never in better spirits or more confident of success. Private George S. Bernard, 12th Virginia Infantry, Mahone's Brigade, Hills Corps.
Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 309 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As you guys will recall, in the last episode, the Army of Northern Virginia was on the move. And finally, so was the Army of the Potomac. We talked about how Joe Hooker, following the inside track, so to speak, at last moved north, away from the Rappahannock, so as to keep the Federal Army between the rebels and Washington. For the Federal soldiers, those were days of hard marching, as their stamina was called upon to compensate for the uncertainty of their commander. They were trying to make up for lost time, and so had to make forced marches in order to quickly get into blocking positions west of Washington. An officer in the Iron Brigade noted, quote, Our army is in a great hurry for something. But, after hustling the Army of the Potomac North in order to keep between the rebels and Washington, Hooker then stopped and waited for something to happen. You see, even after the intense cavalry fighting in the Loudoun Valley at Aldi, Middleburg, and Upperville, Robert E. Lee's intentions were still largely a mystery to Hooker. It wasn't clear whether the Confederates would continue northward into Maryland and Pennsylvania, or suddenly turn eastward and lunge toward Washington or Baltimore. Until Hooker had a clear picture of what Lee was up to, he would have to hold the Federal Army south of the Potomac River, in order to protect the capital. Meanwhile, in Washington, Abraham Lincoln wasn't happy that after Hooker had finally started to move the Federal Army, he had stopped and was now simply marking time, waiting for something to happen. Lincoln was frustrated because he wanted Hooker to be more intentional and less reactional. It was obvious to the president that thus far in the new campaign, Robert E. Lee held the strategic initiative, while Hooker had so far done little except react to Lee's moves. Part of the problem was that George Sharp and the Bureau of Military Information were struggling to provide Hooker with a clear picture of what the rebels were up to. In his book, Gettysburg, A Testing of Courage, Noah Andre Trudeau writes that during these days, quote, George Sharp got very little sleep. The information gathering network he had created worked best when the army was at rest. Now that it was on the move, Sharp found his organization struggling to keep up. One of his biggest headaches was Alfred Pleasanton, whose position as cavalry chief also made him a key figure for intelligence gathering. Unfortunately, Pleasanton showed neither any gift for performing this activity, nor any skill in assessing the information his troopers brought in, and the often wide discrepancies in his reporting made Sharp's job even more complicated. While Sharp and the BMI struggled to bring light into darkness, Joe Hooker marked time. He had forced marched the Army of the Potomac from the Rappahannock to positions west of Washington, but then, for the next six days, Hooker kept his army where it was, there below its namesake river, waiting to see what Robert E. Lee would do.
For Robert E. Lee, the campaign had so far gone quite smoothly. In fact, as Edwin Coddington points out in his excellent book on the subject at hand, by June 17th, the first phase of the Gettysburg campaign had ended. For some days, the Army of Northern Virginia had been on the move, and for a few days, so had the Army of the Potomac, and now both armies had formed a new front. That's because where before they had faced each other in a generally east-west line down along the Rappahannock near Fredericksburg, now the two opposing armies were positioned on a new line running north-south, with the Confederates poised to use the Shenandoah Valley as a springboard for their invasion of Pennsylvania, while the Federals were in blocking positions covering Washington. In the last episode, we said that a major reason the Federals had been kept almost entirely in the dark about Lee's intentions and the positions of the Confederates was because of the masterful work done by Jeb Stuart and his rebel horsemen in screening the Army's movements and in guarding the gaps in the Blue Ridge Mountains. The Union cavalry under Pleasanton made a number of determined efforts to pierce Stuart's screen. At Aldi on June 17th, at Middleburg on June 18th and 19th, and at Upperville on the 21st. But the Federal horsemen, even after being reinforced by infantry, were unsuccessful in their attempts to pierce Stuart's screen, and so Pleasanton pulled back. That meant by June 22nd, the day after the spirited clash at Upperville, Robert E. Lee felt that matters were well enough in hand that he could begin the next phase of the campaign. And so, with Jeb Stuart having ably defended the mountain gaps, and with the soldiers of Longstreet's Corps and Hill's Corps continuing their march down the Shenandoah Valley, Lee ordered Dick Yule to move north into Pennsylvania. Yep. As you all will recall, we closed the last show with a message that Lee sent to Yule, telling him, Longstreet started today. Hill is in motion. And then Lee told Yule, Push on. By the time he received that message, by June 19th, Yule's three divisions had moved down the Shenandoah Valley and were on or just across the Potomac River. Jubal Early at Shepherdstown on the Virginia side of the river, while across the river, already in Maryland, were Robert Rhodes at Hagerstown and Allegheny Johnson at Sharpsburg. Robert E. Lee moved his headquarters from back at Culpeper up to Berryville in the valley to better supervise this next stage of the campaign. Lee let Yule know that his corps' objective would be the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania. As we talked about last week, Yule could follow the northern extension of the Shenandoah Valley, the Cumberland Valley, in a great right-turning arc that would take him to the Susquehanna on the far bank of which stood the state capital of Harrisburg. Lee told Yule, quote, If Harrisburg comes within your means, capture it. As Yule marched up into Pennsylvania, his right flank would be shielded by the South Mountain Range, the northern extension of Virginia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Using Albert Jenkins' cavalry brigade as, as his forward screen, Yule decided Rhodes and Johnson's divisions, together with the Corps wagon trains, would move north by east, up the Cumberland Valley, through Greencastle and Chambersburg, and Carlisle, toward Harrisburg. 
However, Early's division would leave the valley and strike off sharply to the east, passing through the cover of South Mountain at Cashtown Gap, and follow on a straight line from there to York, and then on to the Susquehanna, which he could cross at Wrightsville, turn north, and threaten Harrisburg from behind and below, while upriver, Rhodes and Johnson approached the state capital from the direction of Mechanicsburg. That all might have been a bit difficult to follow without a map in front of you, but what it all boiled down to is that, if all went according to plan, while James Longstreet and A.P. Hill moved up into Pennsylvania behind him, Dick Yule would have the honor of being the first Confederate general to capture a northern state capital during the war. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Before we proceed with talking about Yule pushing on into Pennsylvania, We just wanted to take a few minutes to say a word here about someone who wouldn't be going on, at least not with the rest of the rebel army. That someone, of course, is Jeb Stewart. As we said we were going to do, we're currently using some members episodes over on Patreon to talk about Jeb Stewart's controversial journey to Gettysburg in some detail. So here on the regular shows, we'll just point out that it was the night of June 24th or actually the early morning hours of June 25th, that Jeb Stewart started his ride. Stewart's fateful ride to Gettysburg has been, and still is, one of the most hotly debated topics of the entire Civil War. 
The crux of the issue was Stewart's supposed failure to provide Robert E. Lee with crucial information about the enemy's troop movements in the days leading up to the battle at Gettysburg. The guns at Gettysburg would scarcely fall silent before the questions and finger-pointing began. Disappointed Southerners refused to believe the Confederacy's premier field commander, Robert E. Lee, could lose the battle, particularly one as important as Gettysburg. Someone else, they felt sure, must be to blame. Lee's supporters, inside and outside the army, began looking for a convenient scapegoat. They quickly found one in Stuart. Jeb Stuart's critics would claim it was the lack of timely and accurate intelligence that had caused Lee to blunder into a battle he did not seek, on ground he did not choose. It was all Stuart's fault, it was said, for going off on an ill-advised ride around the Federal Army when Lee needed him close at hand. But did the celebrated Southern Cavalier disobey Lee's orders by stripping the Army of its quote-unquote, eyes and ears? Well, the short answer is no, Stuart didn't disobey orders. As we've already pointed out in the members' episodes, there was actually a certain inevitability in what happened, an inevitability rooted in the command style of Robert E. Lee and the personality of Jeb Stuart. We say that because it may have been Stewart's idea to take three of his five brigades, cut away from the main body of the Army of Northern Virginia, ride around the Yankees, and then link back up with the Army somewhere in Pennsylvania. But, but, ultimately, Robert E. Lee approved the idea. In his post-war writings, Colonel Edward Porter Alexander, an artillery officer in Longstreet's Corps, made the observation, which it's hard to argue with, that, quote, Stuart made Lee a very unwise proposition, which Lee, more unwisely, entertained, end quote. In one of the members' episodes that we've already done, we asked the question, given the high stakes that were involved in his invasion of Pennsylvania, why did Robert E. Lee let Jeb Stuart ride off away from the army? And our answer is that, well, Lee shouldn't have let Stuart ride off. And although we're saying that with the benefit of hindsight, we don't think you need the benefit of hindsight to know that Robert E. Lee shouldn't have let Jeb Stuart ride off away from the army. In this campaign, since his own army would be strung out over long distances during the march up into Pennsylvania, it was vitally important for Lee to know the location of the Federal Army and know when and where the Yankees crossed the Potomac. Lee needed to have this information so that he would know when and where to concentrate his own dispersed army in order to be ready to meet the enemy and give him battle. It's important to understand that in previous campaigns, Lee had already come to place a heavy reliance on Stuart and his cavalry as far as intelligence-gathering activities— and Lee had faith in the timeliness and accuracy of Jeb Stuart's reports. Given his reliance on Stuart to provide him with good, reliable information about the enemy, it was simply wrong of Lee to let Stuart go off away from the army. 
In such a high-stakes operation as the invasion of Pennsylvania, with so much riding on the outcome of the campaign, Robert E. Lee should have done everything in his power to give himself the greatest chance for success. By allowing Stuart to ride off, Lee failed to do this. It's clear that Lee had to anticipate that Stuart would spend several days out of contact with him, even under the best of circumstances. That meant with Stuart's departure in the early morning hours of June 25th, Lee couldn't expect to hear from him again until the 28th or 29th at a minimum. Ultimately, Jeb Stuart's ride was an error in judgment, given that it cost Lee Stuart's services for the most critical week of the campaign. At any rate, as for our story here at this point in this episode, Stewart would spend June 24th preparing and issuing detailed orders to Beverly Robertson. It would be Robertson's and Grumble Jones's brigades of rebel horsemen that stayed behind as Stewart went off on his ride. Stewart was leaving detailed instructions for Robertson because although Grumble Jones was the more competent of the two officers, Robertson, unfortunately, outranked Jones. Also on the 24th, the three brigades that Stuart would lead on his expedition, Wade Hampton's, Fitz Lee's, and John Chambliss's, rendezvoused at Salem, Virginia, which would be the jumping-off point for their ride. As they set up their camps in the nearby fields, the Confederate cavalrymen were unsure what exactly was about to happen, but they suspected something big was in the offing. With his three best brigades poised to begin the proposed movement, Stuart sent 16-year-old Private John Park of the 6th Virginia Cavalry off that night to carry a message the 30 miles to Robert E. Lee's headquarters. The message Park carried would be the last that Lee would hear from Stuart until the cavalry commander showed up at Gettysburg on July 2nd. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Plenty of Blame to Go Around, Jeb Stewart's Controversial Ride to Gettysburg by Eric J. Wittenberg and J. David Petruzzi. As we said, we're covering Jeb Stewart's ride in some detail over on the members' episodes, but if you'd like to learn more about this topic on your own, Wittenberg and Petruzzi's book is a great place to start. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find our contact information, a few photos so you can put faces to voices, and then there's also links to the show's Twitter feed and Facebook page, not to mention information about joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon. Speaking of which, we want to say thank you to the newest members for their support of the podcast. So thanks to Tom, Danny, and Brian. Thanks also to Peter and Randall for their donations this past week. Last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next week 
But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.